Next Chapter Podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The 500. The 500. J.A.M. been walking us down through that 2012 edition. So it ain't nothing to new. Hundreds more to go. Talking the 500 until the end. Talking the 500 until the end. With my man J.M. On the 500. Talking the 500 until the end. Tell me I'm wrong. Take me to the river by talking heads from the 78 sophomore album, More Songs About Buildings and Food. That might be the greatest album title so far that we've had on this list. Big ups, DB. Oh, guess what? It's also number 383 out of 500 on the 500 with me, Josh Adam Myers, the king of fleece, the reason we congregate, or at least I'd like to believe. You're probably here for the music or the guest. Who fucking knows? You've been watching? Because we have uh, two ways for you to see me and my guest. Well, you see the guests in their home and you see me in my mom's. I don't know if this is like a dining room, I guess. I don't even know what it is. Foyer. But guys, every Wednesday we publish full episodes to Patreon for the 500 club members paying $5 a month or more. And we really appreciate the Fleece Army. Thank you guys, all my little kadoogly spooglies for supporting the show. And if you want to, go to patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast. Oh, shit. We're also posting the videos to YouTube every Thursday. That's pretty dope. I got some big things coming up, guys. Thursday night, I will be at Soul Joel's Comedy Club in Royersford, Pennsylvania, headlining again. I want to see all my Philly and New Jersey people out there, man. Come to the show, the Heated Dome. It's going to be so cool. You might go alone, but you won't leave alone. 95% of the people that come to my shows leave with a new girlfriend or new boyfriend. Let's get to the album. Talking Heads. Oh, yeah. 7 p.m., guys. Come to the show. 7 p.m., February 4th. Soul Joel's Comedy Club. Heated turn. Heated turn. Whatever I said. 7 p.m. 
$20 tickets. Young and Sick did the poster. It's going to be dope. I really like this place, man. I just love getting up to Philly. I go to Lorenzo's. I get a slice. Maybe wrap it in a fucking cheesesteak if I'm feeling good. All right. Like I said a moment ago, the talking heads. Not the. You can't say the. Talking heads. Talking heads. Yeah, there it is. I got it right. Talking heads are a band that I knew the hits for. But I was really excited about really being able to dig into this one because I like all their music. I always thought David was a little awkward, but you know, that's, you, you have, dude, I'm telling you right now, we are on a run of like near autistic kind of on the spectrum artists. So who have we had? Bob Dylan. He, I don't know if he's on the spectrum per se, but definitely, definitely Pete Townsend from the who. I mean, that was what David Wilde said. Then we have David Byrne from like, the Talking Heads. Fuck, I can't you keep saying the from Talking Heads. Then you have Modern Lovers, and the lead singer of that supposedly is on the spectrum. And then you have the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson, 100%. All right, let's get into this record. So this was released July 21st, 1978 on Sire Records, produced by my boy. He's been around, Brian Eno. We've talked about him a lot. And this is the second record from American New Wave post-punk art pop rock group, Talking Heads. In 1974, Scotland-born and Baltimore-raised singer David Byrne, drummer Chris France of Kentucky, and his girlfriend Tina Weymouth of Southern California were classmates at the Rhode Island School of Design. Byrne and France formed the conceptual and performance art pop group, The Artistics. Tina was the band's driver. After Chris and Tina graduated, the three of them moved to a communal loft in New York. Unable to find a bass player, Byrne and France decided Tina, who could play guitar, could fill that role. Dressed like the average proto-preppy art school students that they were, they played their quirky mix of minimalistic rock, funk, Motown, and punk at cutting-edge venues like the Mud Club and CBGB's alongside up-and-coming bands like Blondie and the Ramones. After their first single with Sire Records was released, Milwaukee native keyboardist and guitarist Jerry Harrison dropped out of Harvard University's architecture program to join. Harrison was a few years older than most of the bands and a founding member of Jonathan Richmond's Modern Lovers, which we will be doing next week. While working on that first album, they went on a tour of Europe with the Ramones when in London they met famed producer Brian Eno. Eno saw their set and asked them to lunch the next day, after which they went back to his place and listened to records and bonded. After another meeting later in New York, they all agreed he would produce their next record. This would become the first of four records made with Eno, including a side project with Byrne. They were the first artists to record at Island Records founder Chris Blackwell's newly constructed state-of-the-art Compass Point Studios in Nassau, the Bahamas. While the local Caribbean music and Eno broadened their musical landscape, this was the last record before the band and Byrne as a solo artist would really start exploring and incorporating world music into their sound. It also marks the jumping off point for when Talking Heads' career really takes off, and they become one of the most important bands in history. But you'll have to wait until the episode starts to hear all the details because we're going to talk all about it. You can also check out Morty's full biography on the 500 website, the500podcast.com. Because guess what? My guest today is a dude I mentioned that dropped out of Harvard, the one and only Jerry Harrison, one of the founding members of Modern Lovers, and he joined Talking Heads in 1977 and has been with the band until their breakup in 91. And after the breakup, 
He went on to produce a bunch of dope shit, like live. Violent Femmes, No Doubt, The Verve Pipe. Dude, I can't believe he produced live, dude. I alone love you. I alone tempt you. Fear is not the end of it. Jerry's been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002 with Talking Heads. He was received the 2021 Lifetime Achievement Award at this year's Grammys with Talking Heads. And I had a blast talking to him. You know, I get really nervous when I talk to the musicians, especially if they have something to do with the record. I mean, you remember the Peter Asher episode. I got so much shit for trying to crack jokes to Peter Asher, and he hated me. I thought it was fun. Audience, not so much. You guys thought, you were like, you gotta show Peter Asher respect. I respect everybody, people. But I didn't have to worry about Jerry, because Jerry was awesome, man. I, I could have talked to that dude for three hours. And I knew we were going good, because originally he only gave us like an hour and a half. And then right close to that hour and a half, he goes, he's like, I can go longer. I was like, yes! We got him. But he got me and my heart. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on all platforms. And if you're listening on Apple, leave a five-star rating and leave a review, please. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Go to my website, joshadammyers.com, so you can get tickets for Royersford, PA, February 4th, joshadammyers.com, backslash shows. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group run by Crazy Evan at the 500 Podcast with JM. And we have a 500 Podcast fan page. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, nothing left to say, but uh, here we go with number 383. More songs about buildings and food. More songs about building and food. More songs about buildings. Before we get into the episode, Fleece Army, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Super Speciosa. If you already take Kratom, because it's an incredible supplement, people say it's like CBD. I think it's more of an energy and focus enhancer. And yes, Fleece Army, I love staying healthy because it's so important. And taking Kratom has been absolutely necessary in my wellness regimen. But unlike other Kratoms out there, my sponsor, Super Speciosa, keeps their Kratom 100% clean and natural. Because Super Speciosa contains only one ingredient, Kratom leaves crushed into powder. Boom. Simple. Every single batch is put through a natural cleaning process to eliminate germs and protect you. And the Kratom is tested, sifted, blended, screened for potency, and carefully packaged in a lab-grade facility. And that's what you want. A certified system that makes sure you're getting 100% of the best shit out there. And if you're buying Kratom from your local store, that's a huge mistake. You'll save yourself a ton of money and get better Kratom shopping with Super Speciosa. Guys, they sent me a gaggle of stuff. And I've been only using their Kratom. It's great. I mean this. Seal of approval. And if you order from us, you get 20% off your first order. So go to GetSuperLeaf.com slash 500. Once again, that's GetSuperLeaf.com slash 500 and get 20% off your next order. We'll post the link in our show notes so it's easy for you guys just to click it and take advantage of this offer. And we thank Super Speciosa for sponsoring this podcast. They're incredible. It helps me. It can help you too. Try it out. Thank me later. Go get your Kratom at GetSuperLeaf.com slash 500. Back to the pod.
So to all the Fleece Army, we are getting a double dip episode today because we have like a member of we have a member who is not only a part of this album, but he's a part of the next week album. And I couldn't be more excited. So and also I want to talk about you produce one of my favorite records of all time, which is Throwing Copper by Live. Oh, yes. So so let's get right into it. So tell me. When did you first become aware of Talking Heads? Because what I know is you were, they were a three piece uh, playing in the New York scene and then put out a single before they started on their debut. So, so, so tell me what was going on. I think I became first aware of them in oh, the summer of 75. And I first met them in the summer of 76. I was in a funny position. I had been, uh, when the Modern Lovers broke up, I ended up teaching at Harvard. I, I actually got a call from my professor at Harvard asking me to be his teaching assistant because someone had, you know, I don't know, couldn't do it at the very last second. And I went, well, you're in luck. The band just broke up. And so I taught at Harvard and then I worked for a, a computer company, a software development company called Cambridge Computer that actually, those of you in the tech world and particularly a little bit older, do you remember Lotus 123? I think so. So that was developed by a guy named Mitch Kapoor. And he worked at the same company, but after me. So I was working at Cambridge Computer and I had was about to start the Graduate School of Design to become an architect at Harvard when I met the Talking Heads. And we met and then they called me up and said, why don't you come down? We're like looking for a keyboard player. And Literally, the end of the Modern Lovers, we never got our full advance from Warner Brothers, and I was beyond broke. And to get to the be able to do a rehearsal with the Talking Heads, I, I basically waited around until we used the band van, and Ernie Brooks and I moved a family to New York so that I could get to New York. And as it worked out, the organ I was going to bring didn't fit. So I just brought a guitar. So I show up and they went, well, we're looking for a keyboard player. Where's your keyboard? And I said, oh, it didn't fit in the van. But I brought a guitar. Why don't we just start playing some music? Guitar's fine. Same thing. Yeah. And, and so this is where they lived down on the Lower East Side on Christie Street, where they lived in this building that they'd experienced bullets going through the window. The bathroom was out in a pitch black hall in this building that had no other residential uh, residence. It was uh, um, someone who was raising chickens on the roof. And it was, a, you know, it was that mid 70s, early 80s was a time in New York where you really had, you had to really understand which streets not to walk down and which ones what was your route between places yeah. to be as safe as I possible? I think it's still kind of like that, just well, especially during the pandemic. Oh, that could be. <laughs> that could be, but for different reasons. Uh, and so we went out for Chinese food, and we I think we started the rehearsal about like 1 o'clock in the morning, and it just went fantastic. And so they said, well, we're – 
I don't know if it was then or they said, well, we're going to do this couple of shows. Come down with your keyboards and we'll have some rehearsals. We're actually going to have a horn player as well. So I came down at the end of the summer of 76 and we played at the Lower Manhattan Ocean Club. Um, as far as the hit, there's a guy named Mickey Ruskin who owned Max's Kansas City, the local, the Lower Manhattan Ocean Club. I think he may have owned The Saint before that. He was very instrumental in being supportive of the up-and-coming, we'll say, punk music scene, but also was more obsessed by the abstract expressionists. I mean, if William de Kooning walked in, that was a great for him. Great for him. If, uh, you know, Paul McCartney walked in, yeah, well, I know who he is, you know, so... We played the Lower Manhattan Ocean Club, and it went great. And I and I and they said, "Well, we think this is really good." And I can't remember exactly when they said we'd like you to join the band. I think it was a little after that. I had started uh, architecture school, and uh, you know, to my to their, it was so great of them that they kind of allowed me to finish my first semester because I thought that my parents would absolutely kill me if I didn't. I was just about to ask, like, how pissed are your parents? They're like, you know, so Harvard, architecture school. I'm going to join this band. Uh, we're jamming at this place where there's chickens being bred up on top of us. Well, this was the second time because I literally dropped out of undergraduate at Harvard to join the Modern Lovers in the second semester of my senior year. and But I was able to squeeze that semester in and graduate. So my parents had sort of been through this once. But it's sort of like, how much? How long are you going to chase this? You know. Yeah. So, but anyway, so they came up to, and we did a show at the Ratskeller in Boston, and down at Lupo's, a Heartbreak Saloon in in Providence, where they, of course, that was a real mainstay for them because they had been going there when they were at RISD, and and then in January of '77. When I finished the semester, I came down and we began preparations to record Talking at 77. So, all right. So you, you make the first record. So where was everybody's heads at diving into this one? Well, the songs were written. And so for me and for them, when I joined the band, they, it was, how do we integrate the next instrument? Uh, and I think that one of the decisions I made that, you might say what one of the reasons they perhaps chose me over other people that might have been trying out for them for the talking heads is that I never tried to show off my chops when I was trying out. You might say I just tried to make the song seem fuller and bigger and add something that I thought totally was integrated into what they were doing, but sometimes that meant somewhat doubling what David was doing, but maybe with the chords in a different in inversion, sometimes doubling or going along with Tina's bass line, kind of, it, it it was a just sort of filling out the song. I know that for David, it meant that if he broke a string when we were playing, that we didn't have to stop playing, that I could continue and there was a rhythm part playing and he could sing the song with whatever strings were still in tune and worked. And, uh, so we got ready and we started the album in, I think, March of uh, 77. We then 
had almost finished it, but we went on a tour of Europe and Britain with the Ramones, which was one of, in 77, which was just glorious. It was, the weather was perfect. So many times I had possibilities of going to Europe and not gone because of some band I was in. You know, not only the Modern Lovers, but college. I mean, just various things where I was trying to pursue a music career. And, and uh, you know, I was playing with these two hippies from Alabama and went down to Tuscaloosa at one point. And, you know, the, you know, the many paths you, you, you could go down as you try to sort of get some footing in the music business. And, and so I was really excited to be in Europe and we're on this van, in this, in this bus, playing almost every night, but going to really a th- thorough, thorough exploration of companies. So we went to Montpellier and we were in, in Scotland and places that bands don't normally go. Maybe bands that are, are from the country that want to hit every part. And how are the audiences like towards you guys? I mean, because like those are two bands that you know are so revolutionary in what they've done for music. So I mean, did the, did the fans like appreciate? They're like, holy shit! Like we're seeing because I know you said a lot of musicians didn't go down there. Well, I think that the big thing about the fans is that they had learned about this scene in New York often from fanzines, and then of course going to import shops. So they were very open minded to liking both bands, even though we really were very, in the end, drew a very different audience. And we would go out at the end of the show with our sets to go hear the Ramones. And then the people who would come to see us would come up and start talking to us. We'd be, you know, sort of standing at the back of an auditorium. And usually we'd go out in the town with them. It was great. It was like you had an introduction to what's the cool club in uh, Munich or what's the cool club in some little obscure town, you know, Slough or, you know, whatever, you know, and uh, it, it was just great. We tried it in the United States and it didn't work at all. The Ramones fans did, could, did not want us on the bill and didn't want to hear us. <laughs> Because they were Europeans get it, dude. They get it. They get music, like especially the English. It's like all the bands that I fucking love are from England, and then in America, like a few people know them. I'm like, "Eh." well, well, I also look. I think that they wanted to know what was going on in New York, and we were two examples of that. Yeah, they weren't. They weren't. They hadn't bought into, for instance, that they were a punk. And that they had, and that it's so identifying with the ethos, we'll say that is the Ramones. And, you know, it was very interesting because we, we met, you know, you know, we went to, saw the clash on that tour and we went to a party that the Sex Pistols came to. It was right when the Sex Pistols were doing, had released God Save the Queen and were going down the barge on the Thames. And, you know, the weather was spectacularly good for England. It was just a beautiful, like one of those, years they talk about where, you know, the, it only the, rained for half the day. It hardly <laughs> rained at all. And wow. Then he lucked out. And June was just, you know, in the seventies and green and just great. And so that was, you know, and this is sort of a funny story. So our per diem was $5 a day in Europe and $3 a day when we were in Britain. and 
it was, you know, Seymour was saying, well, the promoter will provide dinner. It's like, you know, their idea of a sandwich was bread with one slice of, of ham, jam bone with cheese. I lived off that in Europe. Everyone's throwing, throwing away the bread and trying to pile up some meat in the sandwiches. Yeah. And, and so, so secretly, Seymour came around to the four of us and said, here's $500 each. I know you have a little more refined taste than the Ramones. Because <laughs> <laughs> they can eat that. They can eat that one slice of ham and they, a piece they of bread. Were, they were so excited when we got to uh, – to the states, so they could get back to eating pizza. No, to Paris because there actually was was uh, um, there was McDonald's there. Ah, oh, there it is. Yeah, and any American that's that's on the road in Europe, when they finally see a Burger King, is like, oh, thank God, chicken fries. <laughs> it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. So, so, all right, listen, let's, let's just get into the record then. Well, first of all, I got to say this, and I said this to you off air is I'm a fan of the hits of the Talking Heads, but this was such an enjoyable experience for my first rodeo with this band. Uh, And all I can say, and I'll get deeper into it as we get into the songs, but I get it. I 100% get it. This is a fun record with some real highlights uh, that we will talk about. So let's just dive into the first song because the the album opens with, thank you for sending me an angel. Uh, JT, play the opening real quick. Because album album openers are super important uh, to me, and I think to most fans. So, why open the record with this song? And were there any other tracks that were suggested? I can't recall why, but I think that the reason why is that it was it's such an infectious beat. Yeah, it just you immediately want to kind of start bopping around and dancing and stuff like that. You know, I almost think of it as a grooving country song to me you know what i mean it's a it's a very it's a very major key song and it's happy feeling you know and um it's you know and it's sort of exciting it's like david's singing exciting is exciting and i think it just pulls you in you know i mean for instance we used it in stop making sense you know it lasted all the way to stop making sense is one of the songs from this record that we played in stop making sense it didn't mean it was necessarily the best song. It meant that it fit. 
It just, it had this effect on audiences, you know. Don't forget that when, by the time we had done this record, we had, almost every song of this record, we had played live in front of people and it had been affected by what the audience's reactions were. Yeah. So no, you're 100% right because this song 100% pulled me in. Uh, So what I found this is about is uh, thought of as a boasting track uh, but I've heard it's more likely about a father speaking to his young child with amazement and gratitude. Is that correct? I don't have a clue. <laughs> I never, I never, I took my own explanations about what the lyrics meant. And I never sat down and asked David, what are you getting at? If it was, you know, something like that, particularly on at that period and about this, like these songs, I was, I just kind of took it on face value. So I I'm, I don't want to comment on what people have decided about. But I think that's, but I do think that that's a lovely idea of thinking of a child as the angel, you know? Yeah. Um, so were there any interesting uh, things about uh, recording this that, 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 you know, the listeners might be interested in now? Well, yeah. So this is the first of a few albums that, this is the only one that we did the entire record down at Compass Point in the Nassau. Chris Blackwell, who was very good friends with our manager, Gary Kerfurst, had built this studio. And I believe we were the first non-Jamaican or white people to record there. And it was uh, really just getting operational when we arrived. And I do have a funny story, which is sort of one of my favorite stories, really. is So it was something like February in New York or something. And we had uh, rented a house that Chris and Tina and I stayed in. And David had rented an apartment because there were lyrics he wanted to be. He wanted to be able to go home and have the privacy to, if he wanted to work on lyrics, that there weren't other people that could bother him. So I'm going, it's freezing in New York. I think that we've already got the house. This was a few couple of two or three days before we started. So I'm just going to go to Nassau and to the house. So I booked myself on a flight to Nassau. You know, thinking it'll be like the studios in New York. Well, I'll go to the studio. I'll get the keys to the house and, you know, go stay there. So I get to Nassau and I get in a taxi and I go, I want to go to Compass Point. And they go, what's Compass Point? And, you know, it's it's like it's getting it's dark now. And I'm going, it's a recording studio. And he goes, oh, I think that might be out in Gambia Village. Okay, I'll take you there. But first of all, I have to drop off this other guy. And he was going to the exact opposite end of the island. That's always good. <laughs> so we go, I'm in this taxi, with, and they go to the other end of the island. And then we drive out, and we pull up, and you can see the water. There's like a boat ramp, and the ocean waves are coming in. And there's a single light pole. And you can hear chickens, again chickens. Chickens are following you. That's right, <laughs> It's yes. like a reoccurring theme. Yeah, yes. And... He said, here it is, get out. And it's like, there's not a light on anywhere to speak of. And a door opens and Robert Palmer comes out and goes, you must be desperately in need of a cocktail. Oh, wow. And it was like, it's sort of like, I am so happy to see you. And I had never met him before. And so 
I ended up actually sleeping at a like a little loft over in where the maintenance for the studio was because there was no way to get in the house. And then I got in the next day, but that could have been disastrous because oh, that could have been. The only way that story could have been better is if if you said, and then we both wrote Simply Irresistible together. Dude, I I have been in that situation where you get dropped. When I got my dog, the woman gave me directions. She's like, and I get to the area. I'm like, this is so shady. And she's like, yeah, just go down this dark, gravelly road. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to die. And and ended up getting a dog out of it. So probably the best dog I've ever had. All right, so so let's move on to uh, the second track with our love. So this is my favorite part. JT, play it. They're not so say that this was originally inspired by an old doo-wop song before being played in what you had commented on uh, the prior song a galloping like country style well to me this sounds more like a march okay you know definitely marchy but but yeah. you can, i can still hear the country as well I mean, wait, wait, were you, so were you guys listening to country music around that time that were that was kind of like no? So where's that coming from? You know, so you know the the sound of the kind of you know, Chris played it with that very deliberate straight march tempo, you know. Whereas you know, thank you for sending me an angel has that drum roll and it's like rolling. This is not rolling. It's 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 definitely that four on the floor just marching down to whatever you're going to do yeah so so i this pre, this predates uh both albums and you and in fact it was earlier played live as a three-piece with a saxophone player and once again this is the, these are the interpretations that i have found uh i've been told maybe it's about gender politics or the unattainable perfection of love or even how true love is not genuine you know <laughs> Again, me trying to dive deeply into the lyrics. You've got the wrong person in the no, band. No, no, no. For sure. And this will be the last time I even bring that up. Morty's yeah, going to uh, hate me, but that's the last well, time I bring I mean, uh, you know, I'll talk about life during wartime or something like that because, you know, but uh, I think that, you know, of what, uh, sort of to back up for a second, I don't, I think David's lyrics were less him trying to be exact and tried to get to be about a particular emotion, but we're very as much involved with the sound of the words and what the phrasing sounded like. I think he came up with uh, a, you know, found ways to put together what he considered interesting phrases that were about a subject matter, but he wasn't in a linear way, except for in a song like Life During Wartime, somewhat telling a story or anything like that. He wasn't, he wasn't setting the stage was like Eddie Cochran and, you know, something else. Like there's a girl, I saw a girl. I really want to get to go nowhere. I finally met the girl. I got a job. I bought, I got a car and stuff like that. And now we're, you know, now we're going out. It's like this, it's an act in three plays song. David's songs were much more about a mood and a sound poem that, 
brought you into multiple interpretations that were around a, around an issue or around a feeling, but were not didactically. I don't find it a very, at least for me, not a very good path to go down to sort of didactically try and pick them apart. Because you're you because what what when you were explaining that it reminded me and be it's it's not just a coincidence but Brian Eno produced this record and from what I've learned about Brian Eno which we're going to talk about more later but it's like the way that he just said words that phonetically fit the the cadence of what he was trying to say did was that something that was you know being rubbed off onto David from no, Brian I think, no I don't think that. I think he was already there. I mean, these okay. lyrics were written before we met, uh, before Brian was involved at all. Okay. So let me ask you this. Let's talk about uh, misinterpretation because I've already misinterpreted yeah. the lyrics. Yeah. But what do you think was the most in- misinterpreted thing about Talking Heads? I think that in the early days when, because we played with the lights on and you could see everybody in the band all the time, Every one of us not only had members of the audience that spent concentrated on the member that somehow piqued their interest. Obviously, Tina had a huge coterie of people that were really interested in her because she was the in a performing band. She was maybe the first performing uh, musician who wasn't the singer as well. She wasn't the sex symbol singer. She was the bass player. I mean, she's sexy and cute and all of those, but she was, and so that was, I think she was an inspiration to Kim Gordon and all of these people that came after her. And, but I think that it was pretty understandable how intertwined all of what we did came together. And David, of course, was the singer and he was the songwriter. So I think that when we became when we got to the point that we expanded the band very often giving uh other people that we brought in maybe some of the more fun parts or better parts to play to help them stay excited and uh and the lights you know we got into more complicated lighting and so you know sometimes you could only see david and the background singers and the rest of us were largely in the dark or something like that i think that it started to uh Confu- you know, I know there were people that like, you know, many, some people think that like Bernie Worrell, for instance, didn't play any of the music parts on our studio albums, except for one bass line at the end of Girlfriend is Better. But many people thought that because he saw him in the live band, they saw him and stopped making sense that he'd been on the studio album. So I think that that's the, I think that's the biggest thing that confusion came in. And I think slightly to the detriment of Chris and Tina and I, because. Uh, it really was a band where we all really were sharing ideas and inspiring each other. I mean, look, we would have never have gotten to where we were without this sort of unusual sensibility that David had. And David, David's an amazing lyricist, and, and you know, and to begin with, and an amazing singer as well as just a fantastic rhythm guitar player. So. Uh, you know, and and Chris's drumming, I I rave about it all the time. He just has a a joyful beat that you want to join in on. And when we were talking about the beginning of these, of thank you for sending me the angel, or or with the with your love, with this, uh, that he, you just want to get up and dance to it. You know, he he's one of those people that 
that you just and he's a very he's he also you know very much keeps it simple. He never is trying to show off with his drumming. Not a lot, you know. You don't have him playing drum rolls all the time. Very unlike most drummers who kind of want to show off their chops, so to speak. For sure, for yeah. sure. Uh, no, and you you made a great point because Chris and Tina, you know, I'm not gonna say they're the stars of this record, but it's almost like the drums and the bass are just so prevalent in every song, and that's usually what gets people dancing. Do you know what I mean? Well, um, they were they were a really great team, and you know, Tina, it, you know. Also, is a very unique style on the bass. You know, I mean, David um, was involved in 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 helping her to develop as a bass player. Very involved, and so she was very influenced by some of what he thought about. But then, you know, the more she, we started doing stuff, she came up with her own parts, and she just had a a totally unique style. And it might not have worked in another band, but it really worked well in this band. That's why one of the other things about bands is you really see this in in bands with superstars where you're there's too many the people that are too good, so they start stepping on each other, and it gets too complicated. It gets too, you know, you want to be able to. You don't always want to hear four contrapuntal things going on at the same time. Just, you know. For sure. You know, also, I always felt of myself as sort of like in baseball, the utility player. Yeah. You know, I could play guitar, I could play keyboards, which is, I had played keyboards for much longer. I was certainly much more fluid as a keyboard player. But, you know, I always chose what's going to make the song sound best. And that's how I chose what I was going to play. And I also enjoyed the fact that on stage, it's really great to be play guitar and be able to kind of walk around and be able to, you know, keyboards do lock you down, so to speak. Oh my God. Yeah. Unless you have a keytar. Did you yeah. ever go the keytar route? I tried it uh, on a solo tour for a couple of songs. And I, at a certain point I could see how people got into it, but it just looks sort of stupid to me. It does. 100%. I'm trying to convince my friend Avery to get a keytar because he's a piano comic. I'm like, dude, you got to move around, bro. Get the keytar, yeah. dude. Well, you know, like Edgar Winter was one of the first. He used the keyboard from the ARP 2600 when he was and would walk around doing Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, as soon as I'm done with this, I'm going to go on a long YouTube journey into keytar players. <laughs> All right. Uh, the good thing. All right. So this is what I've read. Okay. Byrne challenged himself to write this as a badly translated communist Chinese anthem. And lyrically, it does have a very proletariat feel to it. So here, play the play the chorus. Well, that was exactly right. That song is the communist Chinese song. Yeah, dude, because as the heart finds the good thing, the feeling is multiplied. Add the will to the strength and its equal conviction as we economize. Efficiency is multiplied. I mean, dude, I can hear Mao Zedong saying that. It, absolutely. Absolutely. I thought that's I thought that song was brilliant because I, I had been involved in leftist politics during the Vietnam War. And I certainly I knew the 
the well, the, it was called the Progressive Labor Party that were very influenced by Mao. And they they would spout these sayings, uh, you know, the the you know the peasantry shall rise from the countryside the you know yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know uh, and the and so i i thought that song was really brilliant and it's, oh, i love uh, it I in love uh that was a song that actually was absolutely the lyrics and the whole thing was conceptual to feel uh that it served a greater purpose and everything else had to like fall in line to you know it was uh well, you know about how this happened in Soviet painting, you know, like at the beginning of the revolution, there was such incredible, uh, uh, you know, painters in Russia, but eventually they became very, very old fashioned and kind of returned to like, you know, portraits of Stalin and you couldn't have abstract art anymore because it didn't serve the interest of the state. Sure. Something that I find uh, to serve the interest of the state and tell me if this is true or not, but the backup vocals were attributed to Tina and the typing pool because with a lack of fee. So, and so, so these are basically all the secretaries and receptionists at the studio. I mean, how dope is that just to be sitting there like, all right, is HR, wait, they need me in the booth. I just, I mean, was that like, just like a spur of the moment thing or is it just, was he always trying to incorporate everybody that was around him? No, it's just we decided uh, that we wanted background parts, women background, and that they were the only women there. But I also think that um, Brian would go chat up the uh, women who worked in the office. So he was delighted to go and to ask them and enlist them to join in. Especially during a communist song. It's like, no, we all do our part. We all have to for the greater good. Did you ever want to be in like a conventional rock and roll band? Uh, well, I wouldn't have rejected it. <laughs> um, you know, I had a, f there was, you know, Aerosmith and, and, uh, uh, the Modern Lovers were coming up out of Boston at the same time, and they were friends of ours. And when the Modern Lovers sort of ex imploded, it was sort of like, God, it'd be kind of cool to play with Aerosmith, you know. At first, my feeling about Aerosmith was that they were some kind of weird mixture of the Stones and the Yardbirds, and I stylistically, I didn't find them that unique. Later, I started to understand how funky how much funkier there were and i you know when they did the walk this way with run dmc i'd been saying when rap came along it just sounds like steven tyler's lyrics you know how many how many lyrics can we cr crowd in and i you know i'd go see them at boston garden and go like god this looks like a lot of fun so but i i do think and you know this is actually there's been some things subsequent to uh even the music business, but I think as a producer also, I very often ended up being paired with, you might say, unique, brilliant musicians who other people might find difficult. Gordon Gano of the of the Violent Femmes being a perfect example. Um, I I think that I got known as that I knew how to 
get, draw the best out of people that maybe the record company had no clue how to to uh, actually deal with. Yeah, and you know, uh, you know, I think it's a ta- I, and I've actually in some of the companies I've been involved with, I think I have a very good gift of helping people sort of uh, realize their own dreams, but also, you know, clarify what what they're doing to the outside world. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um. All right. Moving on to warning sign. Yep. Uh. I right, play the intro. intro and that takes up one third of the song which is a great way to start um this also reminds me of scatterbrain by radiohead uh-huh. and that is so cool to hear the influence on them here just so everybody knows uh jt do you have scatterbrain What are your thoughts on that? I mean, just to see who's been influenced by Talking Heads. Well, you know that Radiohead's name came from the song Radiohead. It's on True Stories. I did not know that. Yeah. And so they obviously were fans of the Talking Heads. Uh, the, I think that warning sign is, is a perfect example of what you mentioned Eno. So those delays on the drums were something that Eno added. And, you know... I think it's one of the reasons why it it uh, was something that we you wanted to listen to longer because he was messing with the delays and so therefore it had an organic. He, one of the things he would do in this record is work with equipment within the studio that would transform one one of the parts coming in on the fly, and it, it really showed we had we really had to be in the position that we trusted him enough because sometimes you'd come in and what you had played was not what you, exactly what you heard. And, uh, but it, it also, I think was a great taught all of us. And that when we went on to produce a, a talking heads records or our solo records influences that we under, began to understand that the studio and the control room was an extension of the musical instruments. They were instruments in their own right. And that, you know, I'm old enough that I kind of remember the feeling of when you look at the early Beatles sessions where the people are in white lab coats in the room that the musicians are sometimes never allowed into, or they can only come in for the brief moment to hear the playback, and then they're kicked out because that's where the expensive equipment is. And I think that Eno very early... You know, also being never spent the time to become like a great technician on an instrument. His instrument was always the combination of effects and the things he did to change things. And he brought that that experimental and that just that approach to the recording process. I wanted to talk about warning signs. So we've all heard that the band found out that David was leaving when you read it in the newspaper. So did anyone see the warning signs before that, or is it really just that surprising? Well, 
I'm not saying it was surprising. We're talking about after we had stopped, we stopped touring in 84. We made our last record in 88, our last studio album. And there had always been the sort of talk and hope, you might say, that we would tour again, and but we were enjoying making records together. Uh, and so I think that when David basically said in an interview that the band was over, he just got frustrated by people asking him over and over again, when are we seeing another Talking Heads tour? And it was sort of like, well, that really, I've moved on. We've we've moved on. But, you know, I had an active producing career. I was getting into producing by that time. I was working on solo records. Um, it was, it wasn't like a, like a shock. <laughs> it was sort of, you might say, uh, you know, it was, just finally coming out and saying, you know, it wasn't a, 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 you know, it wasn't cutting something in half. It was like slowly just sort of ripping apart or dripping, drifting apart, whichever way you want to think about it. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or were nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts. So was there ever like uh, like a sit-down? Or it just at that time, you're just like, oh, okay, I guess we're, we're, we are, well, that makes sense. And then I'm just going to move on. There had been other sit-downs when we had had some sort of issues between each other earlier, but... I, I think Chris and I think Chris may have called him up. I don't. I can't really recall. There was no, like, let's have a band meeting and discuss this. Um, you know, I, I I actually, I guess it wasn't important enough for me to like have this great rec- recollection of it. I just, you know, it was. Uh, I had by that point, my I had had to go out to Milwaukee. To take care of my my father died suddenly, and I started to split my time half and half between New York and Milwaukee, which is why I ended up making Casual Gods in Milwaukee, and then going on and I found a studio that I really liked and an engineer, and the price was fantastic. So, you know, I produced the Violence Femmes there, but I also produced a band that 
a lot of people don't know I produced because I got pissed off and ended up, my name ended up getting taken off of it because I didn't use the mix I used called It's Immaterial, a song called Driving Away From Home that was a hit in England. Top 10. Is this, like, is that, is, wait, is this like a 500 podcast exclusive? Are we getting like something, like nobody will know this unless. Very few people would know it. Dude, an exclusive. Yeah. And so, you know, I was already, I was having to deal with the realities of life. You know, I mean, I was taking care of my mother who had cancer, who then passed away. And I'd found this, you know, I inherited my parents' house and I found that I kind of liked being out in a situation where there was less pressure on uh, getting in and out of the studio on these budgets that the, re- that the record companies had. And one of the things I kind of really understood with the kind of bands that I was being given is that having a few, having more time to record them meant that you got better, much better records that they needed to be able to have some time to explore. Yeah. And things didn't always go. It's already worked out. We did it all in pre-production and bang, it's, you do it in 10 days. Yeah. And so I, you know, that became sort of uh, included in, you might say my production style of how I worked is I, started bringing bands to Milwaukee just because we could get twice as we could have twice as much studio time in the, in the budgets that we were given. Also no chickens in Milwaukee, no chickens, but I did meet my wife there as well. I mean, that's yeah, dude, get rid of the chickens. Chickens are an omen. Yeah. Chickens have been an omen for us. That's, that's Wives, right. perfect. That's right. Yes. All right. So, in speaking of of ladies, the next song is "The Girls Want to Be with the Girls." So, I've read. <laughs> I always feel like I have to give that disclaimer right off the jump. So, I've read that this has been misinterpreted by the LGBTQ community as being about lesbianism, but it actually celebrates healthy and supportive female relationships. Yes, Should I, I, I am I right? We, I think that's right. Yeah. Yes. I think it was an observation. The song had been was written when I joined the band. And we just didn't include it on the first record. But when we played it live, a lot of songs that were already had been written, we played in the show touring for Talking at 77. And, you know, I was becoming more uh integrated into the whole sound of the band and the songs evolved with audiences listening to them. I mean, there's just nothing better for a band than to go on a tour. And, you know, we, those tours where we play two shows a night in clubs. So you're have to have a lot of songs and you're playing usually for sometimes more than, you know, four hours a night and you're, you know, your chops just get that much better and you're, communication between each other gets better. So the girls want to be with the girls. I always understood it. It was something like an observation that David had when he was at RISD is like looking at it and going, well, they've got something they want to talk about and they don't really want us guys around when they're talking about it. There's, you know, maybe girl material and just as guys want to have, have guy material and they don't really want girls, you know, they want to be able to go, piss on a tree at the same time and maybe make a joke that would be uh dirt off off color off, yeah off, potentially off color yes yeah like blue <laughs> yeah, so literally. i yeah. so i read i read tina had a conversation about the subject with david and then later was surprised that the lyrics were basically exactly what they had been discussed yeah i love yeah. that yeah 
Um, but I want to talk about I want to talk about uh, the dynamic of the band because with Tina and Chris as a couple and David as the chief songwriter, did you ever have difficulty with that band dynamic? Uh, I think that. Well, I think that it could it was it could be frustrating to David and me that <clears throat> on decisions the band needed to make that. So often Chris and Tina had discussed it in advance and then they voted, you might say, as a block. Yeah. And whereas David and I were, whenever we were having the discussion, we felt we were open-minded when we first came, we got to it. And yet the best we could do is tie <laughs> if we disagree. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is somewhat funny. It's like I... I had this, um, I had, you know, there were a number of things that I got very involved in, like helping the band decide and get a manager. They didn't have a manager in the beginning. And we had gone through that in the Modern Lovers to the disastrous effect. Now, Talking Heads were more together about their business than the Modern Lovers. They were older and more sophisticated about it. But I said, we have to have a manager, especially when we're on the road. We have to have someone doing our business and interacting. And I kind of, we're not going to get away with, it's going to hurt us in the end if we don't have one. And so I also brought up, I said, it may be a bad thing that we have the potential for ties. I mean, with David singing and writing the songs, would it make sense that he gets two votes? Yes, but yeah, now I like about, this math, by the way. <laughs> okay, so what what does that mean if David gets two votes? He gets two votes because they're the because Chris and Tina are a block, and so you are the deciding. Oh, dude, you're the Kamala Harris, bro. I'm the person who decides everything. Oh my god, how much do you love that power? <laughs> well, it didn't happen. And oh, it, oh, it didn't happen. And I'm not sure that anyone saw my Machiavellian mind working about it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. you, you would end every, every, you'd say something. He was like, we're eating at Chick-fil-A tonight. So it is said, so it is written. I yeah. have spoken. <laughs> I love that. I love it. Um, all right. Uh, found a job. This is a great song. Uh, the highlight for me is the 45, like minute and 45 second outro groove. Um, just so what I've read is with messages about doing what one's one loves, but not wasting creativity burn as the narrator describes a couple that's so bored by what's on TV that they make their own show, which becomes a hit and strengthens their relationship. And this idea was formed in the aftermath of David's father, who was an electrical engineer, wanting him to go to Carnegie Mellon University. But David chose the artistic path to the Rhode Island School of Design. His argument expressed the merits of creative collaboration. Um, am I right? Well, I have no idea that it had any his, whether how his childhood uh, affected it. I, you are definitely right that it's about people being bored, but I don't think it's just a couple. I think it's the whole family. And so when they talk about, I can't remember the guy's name, who's scouting out locations, it's like a family affair of let's not just make home movies, let's make a movie and let's, let's do it together. Well, it, it will be, it'll be fun. And I'm not even sure that success was 
is is in the lyrics about that it's it becomes something more than the joy of just doing it together and then looking at what you created. Um all right, here. Let's let's move on to artists only. Um so this is another ode to creativity. This is also from before you were in the band. I found this to be interesting. The lyrics were originally a poem by a friend and fellow Rhode Island School of Design classmate Wayne Zeve who also suggested the band name Talking Heads. Yes. Yeah, we used to go over to his house to use the swimming pool out in New Jersey. I think it was his parents' house sometimes. Oh, dude, a friend has a pool? Come on, man. In, in like those areas, like Maryland, Pennsylvania, that, oh, come on. Um, so so I, I play the clip because I want to, this, this is, I don't know if you've ever seen Dave Matthews' band Scat Singing. Um, but there's a moment of this song that reminded me of that. And I just want, I just want to play JT, play the, play the part from, from uh, artists only. Vic made this, did these, did these weird edits. He does all this shit with like Trump and he found this clip of Dave Matthews scat singing. And, it, and to me, it's, one of the funniest things in the world. Was that apt or is that completely the most offensive no, no, thing I've ever I, done? I think that's quite, quite apt. And I think that, uh, I, you know, I can't remember quite the expression is, but he... He said that so many of David's lyrics were like, I'm doing this stuff. I'm, <laughs> you know, this sort of. Wearing a kimono too. Almost out of breath, like, uh, you know, these phrases flung at you, you know, that it was this really unique style. And, you know, and David over the years progressed into learning how to be a, a crooner as well, you know. But uh, this song to me, embodied the influence of being painters and going to art school on the on the on music because the different parts of the song to a certain degree bear no relationship to each other and i felt that this was very much like trying to create drama in abstract painting where you had really discordant imagery to for effect and and that this jarring juxtaposition was what the painting was about and then what the song was about and i think that talking heads had that all laced through their music but this song embodied that the most and when i joined the band one of the things i felt i did was at certain times connect those pieces a little better for the audience to for for it to flow but i i did you know i did wonder if i was spoiling something unique about them if i was by by you know you might say by rounding the edges you know i wouldn't say that i was rounding the edges i was saying i would be connect creating a connect connective tissue between these really discordant parts but artists only is the most dramatic version of a song like that of the talking heads i have one story about this is that when we played this on saturday night live 
I had a Prophet 5 synthesizer that had just come out. And, you know, synthesizers are such that if you do one preset, it can sound like a horn and another one sounds more string-like, but one can be a bell or a sound like someone pissing or it can be. And as we went on, the the tech the technicians that were part of the union technicians on the on the at Saturday Night Live made it so I couldn't hear what I was playing or could the audience or David and Chris and Tina. But you know, eighty million people in the country could hear it. And so, you know, it's like it's sort of like I'm pressing this button and I'm pressing this button. And I'm doing this, and I sure hope I don't hit the wrong button because it's going to be so awful, <laughs> you know. It was, it was, and if you look at the clip, you'll see me right before we going on. I'm looking around and trying to see is there something? Is there something here? It's like I can't hear myself. What is going on here? And and you know, it was a very uh, tense moment. I am watching that clip the second this interview is done because I am so excited to see. I mean, if you could see, if I notice one little like movement of the eyes on your face, I'm like, oh, dude, he's in it. He's freaking out, dude. Um, I wanted to ask you this because the band had such a short but very active career prior to you joining. Um, When did you first feel like an official member of Talking Heads? I mean, they made me feel pretty comfortable. Um, I would say that once we, that I would, certainly the Ramones tour, I mean, even playing, making the first album quite a bit, but the Ramones tour where we went and played every night, you know, it's like, this is the new, this is the band now. Yeah. This is not, you know, that was the band. This is the band. How did that feel? Being on that tour, not to cut you off, but how did that make you feel to be, because they were calling you punk by association. Yeah. How did that feel? I mean, and then finish the thought. I didn't mean to cut you off because you were on it. Well, I, you know, I was perfectly happy by being called punk. I didn't think it was a great description. I found that new wave to be a uh, such a bland term. It drove me nuts. I mean, then yeah. of course, it was sort of stolen from the new wave cinema that was. French New Wave, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. Bedard and, you know, Eric Romer. It was the most boring film class I've ever taken in my life. Yeah, so. And and they were all like really influenced by Hitchcock, but that's another story. But anyway. Sure, sure, sure. And so I didn't like New Wave very much either. I always, I am of the opinion that the first really punk band was the Modern Lovers. Uh, you could many people would say the Stooges and the with the great influence of the Velvet Underground, but I to me what punk means was it was going against where mu- the music and business had been going, which was it was getting professional. So you started having musicians who had gone to the academy, and especially in England you had the prog movement coming out with these. Songs that were twelve minutes long with its capes and all this crap, and punk was about no. I want to tell this. I want to be as short and sweet and get a point across. And I felt that punk music was, if you have something you want to express, find the means to express it, and it's not all about you. Uh, 
how much time you spent practicing your instrument. In fact, that there are sometimes advantages if you just learned your instrument because you play it in a different way. Uh, both in the Modern Lovers and the Talking Heads, when we were writing songs, sometimes we would trade instruments and get that sort of naivete that, and sometimes we'd actually use it on the records, but not, not, not normally. We certainly didn't do it live. Although in the Modern Lovers, I actually would play drums on Pablo Picasso for a lot of times. and David played bass. And it wasn't until we got to recording it. And after doing one take, I was worn out. And we had to do another take. And so then David taught me the bass part. So, and then you, if you listen to Pablo Picasso, which is such a magnificent song, and John Cale's piano part is so brilliant that you can hear the bass part. I'm going like, do, 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 do. But by the end of it, it's like, it's like you can hear the, you can hear how tired my forearm has just gotten. <laughs> So, so I didn't mind. So we shared that with the Ramones and all of the CBG band, CBGB bands is that we're not about artifice. We're not about grandiosity. We're about simplicity and straightforward and to the point. And so I thought it was fine that we were part of that movement. But I think that the term punk, what it kind of, how it kind of grows out of what punk meant in the 50s certainly didn't apply to us. And and so that's why people felt some desire that they needed sure. to come up with something else. So you mentioned The Modern Lovers, and we're doing that next week. And I was talking to my my writer, Morty, and we were talking about how, and, I'm, and if I fuck this up, just please correct me. But we were talking about how the, the album that we're doing for Modern Lovers was like a series of demos that you did four years prior to it being released. And then it gets released and people are like, Holy shit! What the fuck is this? But by and if I'm wrong, were you already by that point with the talk with Talking Heads? No, it was released in the beginning of 1976. So it just it's one of the reasons that they were interested in me as a potential keyboard player was hearing the sound of what I played on that record and thinking that that would work with them. So 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 when did officially? Because from my understanding, Jonathan didn't want to make that style of music anymore. He wanted to do these more softer, I don't want to call them love songs per se, but just unlike Modern Lovers. Well, so when we did those, what became the first Modern Lovers, which was in this, I think the spring of 1972, we recorded those. Um, Jonathan was still feeling his, what I would call, I think that Jonathan and Gordon Gano are the two writers who most effectively uh, captured what I would call teenage angst. But I think that Jonathan became, he grew up a little bit, you might say, or he, he became, uh, um, he didn't want to be so angry. He didn't want to be complaining. He had other things he wanted to say. And he also got into this, he, Jonathan was always obsessed by you know, Caruso, who could fill a room, didn't need a microphone or a PA. He took lessons from an opera singer named Dante, Dante something or other. And, and he always wanted to be like Dante. So he loved this idea of making it quiet that he could walk away from the microphone and fill the room with his voice. So that's why he graduated into, you know, wanting to make sure that he gets very upset when he's in a bar and there's uh, the clinking of the glasses in the back. 
And I just did another record with Jonathan last year, and we were going to do one when COVID struck, where it's called SA, S-A. So you should check that out if you're doing the modern. Yeah, it's a really fantastic record. If you can't find it, get back in touch with me. I'll get it to you. For sure. Well, it's it's so funny that that with this episode and then next week being Modern Lovers, because the only real song that I know, besides the stuff that Jonathan did on like There's Something About Mary, but was was from in Roadrunner, uh, we just did MIA Kala. And she basically takes the road, run a road, run like the whole, basically all the lyrics in one of her songs, which then got me to look at that. My curious question was, were you like when, when the modern lovers dissolved, I mean, was, was that, was that a shock to you or was it just like, you know, was it like, no, this is, it's time. Cause I want to get a little inside scoop for next week. I haven't done the research on next week yet, but I want to. It was sort of like we reached the point. Uh, I reached the point is like, Jonathan's wanting to play so quietly and so that it, there stopped really feeling like there was room for expression for me. So I was sort of over it by that point. All right, moving on. Uh, so I'm not in love, which I'm not, and I'm really lonely right now during COVID. So this is David's anxious and unironic desire for a world that has outgrown the politics of human interactions like love and sex. Uh, this is another song like that, that I, I totally heard Radiohead. So play 103 from this. I'll play the intro to Bangers and Mash from Radiohead. And in concert, and it all makes sense once you told me that they got their name from uh, one of your songs, Tom York even shouts pretty like David does at the beginning. Should they be paying you royalties? They should give you one of their cottages. Uh, That would have been great. (laughs) <laughs> or if they'd had me produce one of their albums, that would have been nice too. So you should, you know what? I, I bet you could take they, Nigel and you could take uh, Nigel in a fist fight for sure, dude. Nigel yeah, Godrich. Yeah, him. but he does he does a really great job. So it's like I, you know, I got no complaints of what they're doing. So, um, for sure. this song was always a favorite live. Oh, I get that. And this was a song. This and maybe Love Goes to Buildings on Fire, where in the long jams at the end where I was getting better and better as a guitar player by being at the Talking Heads because it was the first time that I was in a band that was playing all the time and I was playing guitar sufficiently to be getting better every night. And so I was really growing as a guitar player while in the Talking Heads. And so the interplay in some of the live versions of this you know, a couple of years later before, right, say, like, particularly on, say, the tour for the Fear of Music before we made the big band, I'm Not In Love was a big song at the end of our show where David and I would be kind of making noises and doing, working off each other. And in the way, it was the closest, and also on Love Goes to Building on Fire, it was the closest I thought we got to, say, Tom Verlaine and Richard Lloyd, although they're very different than we were, where it was just a wonderful intertwining nature of how the guitars work together. And uh, now I didn't think of, I always thought of this song is a little bit like everyone's too obsessed about love. There's more important things in life. 
than your that your love life. It's not like it's not important, but that the the modern world has has elevated it to be the end all and be all. And you know, you look at all the other cultures about you know, in Europe, marriages certainly amongst the upper classes was about family power and love sometimes was there and, and but it was not always the same kind of love and particularly uh sexual attraction sometimes had nothing to do with it and so i think that david saw that that and that also popular music has been part of this uh selling of romantic love as the as so part and parcel in the only way in our culture and that you sort of and, and don't feel bad about so it's sort of like don't feel bad about yourself there's other there's so many other examples of cultures where this way that we've chosen now it was different then so i i, I saw of it as a world his world picture is like my work is more important to me than my love life. No, well, that, that, that kind of goes along with my question because where rock and roll has always been like synonymous with sex and especially in the 70s, mm-hmm. but Talking Heads via David always seemed to establish a cool distance from that lifestyle. So was there ever any crazy debauchery backstage? Like, or was it like the after parties just rocking or? Uh, well, having a woman in the band... So yeah, that changes the dynamic. Is, 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 is <laughs> effect, affects that. Um, I think that the most, it was not backstage or anything like that, but there were, when the band expanded to 10 people and we were a touring party of 20, you know, we were an instant party if we went anywhere. I can imagine. And so, and so if there was ever a time where, it's also we were all had a little more money. So if there was anything that one would call more like uh, talking, uh, you know, uh, rock and roll lifestyle. It was, it was on those tours. Was there, who was, was and when you got to that 20 person, you know, show, uh, who, who, who partied, the, I don't want to give anything, call anybody out, but was there any wild men, like, like the piccolo player or something like, dude, this guy, Frank. On yeah, the well, I mean, well, Chris was, Chris was a part a, a great partier who had the great ability to be able to pace himself. Oh God. I so then he could go, he could go on forever. I was a little bit much more of. Blackout. Go, no, we're not just like blackout, but just go in so intensely. And then like, I got to stop. I got to go home. To yeah, yeah. You know, you know, um, but you know, Chris and Tina were, a, you know, I was, I would say that certainly that, that, that period was the most, uh, you know, you know, look, meeting girls and things like that for me during that period and and having, you know, Steve Scales and Busta Jones and on, on the other uh, Man in Life tour and, you know, Bernie to a degree and stuff like that. There, there was always someone out and going, well, let's, let's go out and see what trouble we can get in, so to speak. Having been this, when I did Casual Gods, I really understood how David had to be, like when you're the singer in the band, you have to be so much more cautious about that because it really takes a toll on your voice. Um, I, I think I think both Dave Davies and uh, um, there's some other brother combinations who 
might even be uh, Black Crows. Black Crows, maybe Noel Gallagher. I'm not sure which of the Gallagher's. Who'd be like, oh my God, I know, I could sing great. I'm I'm just as good a singer, but I didn't want. I wanted to be able to out, go out and party and be able to play just fine the next day. <laughs> yeah, trust me, I completely understand. I, me and you, very similar in the way we partied. Um, all right, stay hungry. Uh, which is so funny because as soon as I saw that the title, I was like, oh, that's like the the movie from the seventies with Jeff Bridges and and Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is funny because lyrically. Uh, I read because I first I thought it was Eno's oblique strategies cards with the lyrics, but it actually came from a bodybuilding magazine. Chris read, uh, which likely referred to the title of the movie uh, with Schwarzenegger and Jeff Bridges and uh, Sally Field. One thing I love about this is the minute long instrumental break. I think this is is probably my favorite part on the on the record. Uh, play 37 seconds in JT. <laughs> Part is my favorite part of this song. <laughs> uh, any thoughts on this? Uh, you know, do you have any stories about the song? Or, well, the part that you like with that sort of uh, string-like synthesizer line that rises through—that was something that Eno wrote, and then I then I played that live, and you know, it gave a sort of calm contrapuntal thing to the sort of hyperkinetic nature of the of talking heads it, it again it was a big favorite live it was when i played it live it was a challenge because there were lots of sounds so it was like move here do this move here do you know it was um i mean we did it you know before i had a synthesizer so i was using an organ and stuff like that but there were there was a sense of of having to really be ready to get your hands to play the right part. And also if you had to make a sound change to have time to push the button to get there, you know, it was a, uh, you had to plot out your course to make it work. Well, I'm glad you brought up Inu because I want to really focus on him for Take Me to the River. Uh, so this is the sole single from the record. Uh, it's about a baptism and an exorcism through a bad relationship. It was originally by Al Green from 78. Uh, it's been covered by so many artists. Uh, this one reached 26 on the Billboard Hot 100 in the U.S., which was both Talking Heads and the song by any artist's highest chart success at that point. And that includes a version by Eno's old bandmate, Brian Ferry. And I read uh, that you guys have been playing the song at gigs for a while. And, and then you get to the studio. And I just love how you slowed this down as much as possible without losing the groove and the drive. This is definitely my favorite song on the record. Uh, this is probably my favorite part. Peter, play it. That 
hard. Uh, one thank you for for writing that. Well, for for recording it. Um, and uh, any thoughts on this? Because I, I've got so much information about it. But well, uh, well, one thing that was interesting is that first of all, this was a hit at AM radio, not FM radio, for Talking Heads. Hmm. Which is, you know, it was right when FM was taking over. When we were out for Talking Heads '77, we would. It was the time in FM radio for every uh, DJ would have wind chimes. And we would get comments like, but I really hate this punk music, but basically I think I like you guys the best of all of those awful bands that are coming out of CBGBs. (laughs) (laughs) And so this was hit on AM. We released it, Brian Ferry released it, Foghat released it, and maybe even Levon Helm released it, all within a few, couple of months of each other. So it was a rate, a lot of people had recognized that this was a great song and that could be used as a rock song and or as a different song. Now, Teeny Hodges of the was a co-writer on this song from Memphis. He and the Hodges brothers, uh, the Reverend Charles, Leroy and Teeny Hodges were the high high rhythm section. And I don't know if you've seen the movie that I that I am a producer of called Take Me to the River. Have you it's seen about it? the the Memphis hip hop scene. I haven't seen it, but uh, but Morty was telling me about it. It's a well. I really recommend you and the audience see it. It's about the what happened to Stax Volt and High Records, which was uh, uh, Willie Mitchell's studio, and basically in the aftermath of the assa- assassination of Martin Luther King, all of these things splintered and fell apart and kind of wrecked Memphis as a town. Apparently in the 50s, Memphis was considered one of the nicer places to bring up kids and to live in the country. And it went to becoming a very, you know, there was white flight to the suburbs. And even the companies that have come there, like FedEx, they're out at the airport. They're not. And uh, so the the movie introduces R&B singers and old R&B singers to rappers and neither have heard of each other. You know, it's the continuation of music in Memphis, but with this disconnect, and we became the connection to pull them together. And then they would do a performance together. It's a wonderful movie, very uh, uniquely different because it's new performances. It does not only rely on like found footage to be really interesting, which almost every other music documentary, you know, a lot of times, like if you look at the Funk Brothers, there's some version of the guys getting together and playing again but it's always nothing compared to how exciting it was when you look at the found footage whereas the whereas take me the river is in the studio with you know fraser boy with bobby rush or little peanut with otis clay or william bell and snoop dogg or you know it was so it's it's However, what I what was interesting is I've gone and there was a touring act, and so I got to play "Take Me to the River" with uh, actually all three of them, Teeny, Charles, and uh, Leroy. Teeny died after the with the show after the uh, sort of premiere of the of the film at South by Southwest. We had a huge outdoor con. And uh, he passed away a couple of months later. 
but it, the version playing with them, it's all on the upbeat. And A, there's some slightly different chords, and the changes are at a different time to how Talking Heads plays it. And I attribute this to David taught me the song, and I never listened to the original. I just I just played it with David and Chris. And, and so our song is, again, it's a slow march, and it's on the beat, you know, Da, da, do, da, 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 right? Whereas the other one is. And it's like this all the time. And it's a, totally different. And the original is brilliant. But ours was like, it also it really made ours. It's like a, wasn't copying except for same, but it was uniquely ours because, and I think that, you know, it's, it's, Probably the song that my, the organ is the loudest that dominates more than any other Talking head song. You know, it's, it's built around the organ part, not around the guitar parts, which most of the other songs are. So, so uh, love the organ, first of all. I love, I can't tell you how much I love this song. Um, and what I read was to achieve the effect of the song getting louder as it progressed, producer Brian Eno ran the song into a limiter and slowly increased the intensity until it became squashed into sounding louder. Now, uh, being that you're uh, a producer as well, and you worked with Eno several times, and this is what's so crazy, is that we've been doing... Oh, fuck, we've probably done 114 episodes. Brian Eno, we've done two of his records that were just him. We've done Roxy Music. He's produced a few of the records. It's probably the fourth or fifth album that he's produced. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think you learned the most from those experiences? Well, the one thing I also wanted to say that he added Please. to this song is he added those kind of, those kind of like going, but with like echo on it. Yeah. This, uh, he called them epi events, epi meaning very <laughs> short, like an epi pen, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he was very, so he thought there needs to be something here. I'm going to, um, and he did that. I don't, I did not know that about the compressor. And I don't know if he did that at the mastering lab or if he did it during the mix. I don't recall him doing it during the mix because he was, we were, you know, this is back in the days before automation. So many of us had our hands on the board, but largely Red Davies and Brian on the faders. And, you know, one of us, like there's some, there's this one part, go up to that mark and then pull it down at the right time, <laughs> you know? Not, um, so I think it's probably, he did it at the mastering lab. To, to try and do that. And but what if have you I mean how what have you taken from working with Brian? Well like, the first the, your... the first thing was that the entire studio is an instrument to be used in the creation of the music is not a sort of a the slate that you're it's not the canvas that you're painting on. It's part of the composition itself. And also experimentation is good and it's fine if it takes longer. Keep experimenting until you get what you want. And, uh, you know, he he had like, you know, he did have his oblique strategies. Did he use them? Yeah, once in a while. Oh, once in a while. The other one, his, 
if you really can't think of anything, he would smoke pot. Nice. And he would say, but you only will get one idea and then you do it and then you have to go home for the rest of the day because then you're wrecked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, one thing I learned from him that I don't, that I actually would sometimes fought against, like uh, at, at, and Dave Jordan and I would then ganged up on him with, on Remain in Light was he's very impatient. And so sometimes you know that you it could be better. And like Dave Jordan would say, Brian would say, just put the t- just play the tape. It's just a guide. And Dave would go, Brian, it's never just a guide with you. You finally go. You always go. That's fine. Let's just move on. Yeah. So I quit unless I have enough time that I can get a sound that I am proud of. And that's all there is to it. And then Brian also wanted to roll the tape at 15 minutes, 15 IPS, which is can be good for the low end, but makes less clear high end. And Dave and I said, no, we want to run at 30 IPS. And, and Eno said like, oh, but it takes so long to rewind. And it's sort of like, well, we want it to sound good, <laughs> but you know, he's, he's, uh, he, yeah, but that's what I really took from him. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I'd have ever become a producer. How would I not spent a, co- a couple of times being there every day and working with EDO, sometimes just watching, sometimes being actively involved and just, you know, it, it's easy to see a job as being, something mysterious that is beyond you. I mean, I don't think musicians have this anymore because they all have their own home studios. So they all have know what a compressor is now and they know what EQ is. Sometimes it's wrecked them because they always have an idea about everything. And, you know, they don't have the experience that other people do. And, uh, but, you know, he made the studio feel a fun and like we're going to like it's 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 part of the creative it's part of the whole creation. I love that. I love that. And now I wanted to ask you this because you've you've produced so many albums. What what album that you've produced have you felt has been the most Eno esque? Where you were like, I oh my god, I'm channeling Brian right now. Oh, hmm. did you ever wear a kimono? That's that's the main thing. No. <laughs> okay, I didn't think so. No, you didn't. no, I, no, I never. No, wore but it. you would look good in a kimono. I think oh, you know some absolutely. people can pull it off. Yeah, absolutely. I could. Yeah. <laughs> It's a good idea. Um, I do know that when I was doing the Vi- Violent Femmes record, that there it was the beginning of when there were digital tools in the studio. And I w- had learned a lot about them. And we had, what did we, I had already, we'd already moved on into Remain in Light and beyond, but uh, that... I was really, uh, you know, what I was, actually, I think it's, I'm going to say, it's not the violent films. I would say it's when I started doing uh, my solo albums that his idea of, you know, I was producing them myself is that the studio was part and parcel to the, to what I was doing. And I was usually playing all of my parts sitting in the control room now out in the other room. And so it was about, messing with the with the uh the uh tones 
in the studio at the same time you were starting to create them or getting ready to do it. So trying to be Brian at the same time as I was being the guy playing the parts. That's so great. That's so great. I love this. I can't, I can't thank you enough for my pleasure. My pleasure. All right. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living. And every week, I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. Final song on the record, The Big Country. Now here's what I read about this. David Byrne. Uh, had been known for his cold and disaffected view of society. So this is an openly mean dismissal of the rural flyover areas of America. But years later, he claimed it was a satire of his image as a snobby New Yorker and that he has a deep respect for those parts of the U.S. Um, thoughts on that? Well, we did fly to California. We were... we. Very often, we, we really built our audience in California because they seemed to react to us. And so after the New England and around New York, at that sort of eastern seaboard, we spent a lot of time in California, partially because we'd go out there in the winter and it'd be warmer. And so we so we set a lot of cross-country flights where you could sit at the window and you're just looking down at the farmland and like, wonder what those people are doing down there, you know? I have no idea if, if what David is saying is true or if that when he got out to do true stories and was living in Texas and he started to, which has a potentially, I mean, true stories has a respect, but also a potentially maybe um, slightly New York snobby look at, of, of middle America, we'll say too. So um, he certainly had the, the potential for both, we'll say. And, and I think that he grew to appreciate, uh, I mean, David expanded as a person. He's expanded in his songwriting, you know, so. Um, Did you guys get any backlash from from fans or maybe friends in those flyover states? No, uh, I think that Live got more backlash for writing Shit Town than we did for the- <laughs> We did for the big country. <laughs> yeah, dude, I mean, this song was called Shit Town. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they um, might as well have been like, you know, York, Pennsylvania sucks. York, Pennsylvania yeah, yeah. sucks. <laughs> oh, God. That's such a I – but then here's the other thing that I wanted to ask you, uh, unless you have more on that. Well, the one, thing I, the one thing I'd say about – so I was playing the slide guitar, which I yes, was – Yes, that's I, what I wanted to talk about. So I'm not a particularly – I was not a very uh, adept and used to playing slide guitar. Yeah. And so I was I was playing it, and finally I went back and say, I think we should we need to slow the tape down for me to play this, and I'll tune my guitar down. And we slowed it down, maybe with the thought that we would just speed it up, but that way I would be able to. I played it, and then everyone went, I like it much better at this <laughs> other tempo, and then it's that's what that became the tempo of the song. All right, here let's play play uh, JT play a little bit of a slide guitar for us. I see the shapes I remember from maps I see the shoreline 
killed it. Dave, killed it. That's great. Also, I heard this was inspired musically and lyrically by the Roxy Music song Prairie Rose. Uh, Possibly. I don't know. Who knows? Eno. Eno does crazy things. All right. You want to do a couple facts and we'll get you out of here? Sure. I mean, you wanted to ask me about live, so like. Oh, well, that's that's the last. Well, fuck. Now I'm on the spot about it. Yeah. Let me get a couple facts and then I'll do the I'll do the rapid questions about it. Okay. Um, so uh the success of the Take Me to the River single got them on American Bandstand, where after their performance, David Byrne gave such an awkward interview, host Dick Clark turned to Tina Weymouth to desperately ask, Is he always this enthusiastic? And she glibly replied, I guess he's just organically shy. Can you tell me about that? It was a very weird, weird scene. It was out in a uh, out way out in the valley, like I think out in Glendale, but like out towards the San Geronimo Mountains. And they shot multiple uh, episodes on the same day, so the audience between episodes would madly go out to their cars, and you'd see all these people changing their clothes in the parking lot for the next show. And, you know, it's like you're on Dick Clark and you're sort of, you know, I mean, I remember Dick Clark from American Bandstand when I was growing up and it's sort of like, you're kind of going, holy shit, has he had a lot of plastic surgery? Christ. And, but also it's like, I'm, Oh my God, I'm on, on uh, American Bandstand. And, and yes, I mean, I'm a little bit, tongue-tied, I would say, when I'm asked, but David was uh, more. I mean, I think one of the things I know that like on American Utopia, it's wonderful to see that David has become so comfortable. I think one of the more interesting things about American Utopia is him, his conversations to the, with the audience, not really back and forth, but to the audience about subject matter, um, which of course, in Talking Heads, it was, he didn't really want to talk to the audience. So we that was our sets were very much like song to 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 song, you know. Name of the song is song to song to song. You know, it was relentlessly, here's the music in our songs. This is not about being relaxed and let's pull up a stool and, you know, chat about like anything about, or as a lot, you know, a lot of people, that's almost their most, one of the more endearing things. I remember. I was with Peter Coyote seeing Tom Rush, an old 60s folk singer who was playing at Sweetwater here in Mill Valley. And Tom Rush goes, I just had a kid. You know, most of my friends, they're having grandkids. He goes, I just decided, cut out the middleman. And, you know, it was, you know, the audience, it was uproariously funny to the audience. And so... That was as important as the songs to people is like the, the whole atmosphere. We atmosphere, weren't like, yeah. we weren't like that at all. So yeah, Tina was uh, right. Well, speaking of atmosphere, we've kind of brought this one up earlier, uh, but for, for the first, you guys were the first artist to record at Island Records founders, uh, Chris Blackwell's Compass Point Studios in Nassau, the Bahamas, which we mentioned, which which had reportedly just been christened for good luck in the Jamaican custom by Blackwell. And this is we've been talking about this all show by him spitting out the blood of a freshly slaughtered chicken around it. And that voodoo must work because you guys recorded two more albums there. Is that correct? And why do you guys hate chickens? 
As far as I know, that is correct. And I know that Lee Scratch Perry wrote a whole thing when he was mad about mad at Chris Blackwell about that. So you could I don't know if you've got that track, but you could learn more about it from that. We will we will find out. We will find out. About I, you know, I do I do think it was a I don't know if it's actually for good luck or to ward off evil spirits. I'm not. I'm not I, I think I, it's, I, it's probably ward off evil spirits because it sounds very much like the the putting the lamb's blood on the door for Passover. Yeah, you know I think I mean? it, like, yeah, I think it's more of a sacrifice for the evil spirits rather than a good luck. Yeah. And and we had a great time there. Like there was uh, there was this other artist named Ijaman that was recording when we did our first record there. When we were doing Remain in Light, uh, ACDC was in the next room doing Back in the Black. Oh, my God. And we, what was interesting is, first of all, like, Chris got some snorkel gear, and Chris and Tina and I were going out snorkeling, and, like, I had never snorkeled. I was like, oh, my God, is this one. I was, like, in a bad mood. And Chris goes, you got to come and do this. And it was like, I'm in a bad mood. I bet, And then I put my face in the water, like, oh. Wow. <laughs> I'm not in a bad mood at all, you know. And no one in ACDC ever went in the water like sharks. Sharks. Right. Not going to do that. But we recorded all of the basic tracks to the entire record in three weeks. And as I remember, they did one guitar solo and one vocal in the same period of time. That's hilarious. So, it, you know, and it was right when Brian Johnson had joined the band and he would get these compression headaches. So he'd, you know, it's like he'd go, Ma! and he'd go, oh, God, I got it. And you'd see him out going, oh, I got to get rid of this. So it was such, he got, I don't have this problem live. I don't understand why I'm having this. But he had some big shoes to fill. I can understand the pressure. Pressure, yeah. And, uh, and of course, Mutt Lang is a excellent singer and a, and a incredible producer. We did, we did Def Leppard Hysteria. Yes, and I, I, he also did. I, I don't know one of the Def Leppard albums. He they worked on it for a few years, and they had finished almost finished the record. And he was going, "The radio's changed. We have to start over." It's We're hysteria. Gonna, it's the one yeah. we did. We did this on the podcast. He wanted to make. He wanted to make a heavy metal uh, thriller. Yeah, and so we and he went to Denmark or something like that to do. You know, um, he yeah, but he was. I never. I mean, we. We talked at a party at Chris Blackwell's house one you know, but I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't get to know him better because I do really respect what he's done, though he is. I, I did hear a funny story. I don't know if it's true that Bono was walking down the streets of, of Dublin and ran into the singer of Def Leppard. And there was a guide track that Mutt had put down and the singer of Def Leppard, whose name now escapes me, and Bono goes, well, what are you doing at the studio today? And he goes, today I'm going, yeah. No, that's not quite right. <laughs> yeah. No. That's it. And it's sort of like, oh, my God. So that, you know, one thing about Eno is he wouldn't put up with that. It would be like, we need to get like 10 of these songs done today. Let's go. Let's go. That's fine. Let's go. I love it. All right. I got some rapid fire questions um, and this. All right. So uh, what is what song off this record are you most proud of? Take me to the river. Take me to the river. Um, is there any song on this record that is that you might skip over when listening to it? No. No. Okay. Good answer. Um, 
then these are, I pulled these from other ones. Uh, what was your wildest gig, wildest or strangest gig with Talking Heads? Playing in Milan, it was a show that was like, the tickets were $10, it was outside. But 10,000 people decided they wanted to get in free and they pushed the fence down. And the police started shooting tear gas at the people who were coming in. And then they started shooting tear gas at us and at the sound tower. And so, and they're, and they're probably shouting stuff in Italian at you. You don't, I mean, yeah, it sounds and, so and romantic. So, and so, I mean, there were a whole number of these ones. And so there's, there's this tear gas is wafting up on stage and everyone's going, oh, is that bug repellent? And Steve Scale, I had been in demonstrations, so I knew what it was. And Steve Scales, you know, who was in Vietnam goes, that's fucking tear gas. <laughs> so that was strange. And then the night before we played in Bologna in the middle of a field and there were 5,000 people backstage and Alex Weir had gotten hit by a, someone throwing a beer on stage, kind of bruised his head. And we said, we got to get out of here. We got on the bus and our crew came to us and said, if you want to play tomorrow night and have equipment, get back on stage and do some encores because we are not guarding your equipment. You know, there's 20,000 people out there and 5,000 behind us. So we dutifully went out and like made the crowd happy. Oh, God bless you. Um, all right. What was your most magical moment in the entire career of talking heads? I think playing forest Hills stadium. Uh, and I think it was, I'm not sure if it was Stop Making Sense or the tour before Stop Making Sense, but it was the old Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. Um, Madonna and Mick Jagger were like right to my right, watching from the side of the stage. Uh, the audience, it's a beautifully designed for a concert because it's so steep that it's as if there's an entire, like 20,000 people, like, but, you know, five stories, like right in front of, you know, not like out, but in front of you. And they were so into it and so close feeling, but still a really big audience. And the band was like at its like, you know, really great. And, you know, we had a great show. It was home. New York was home. And that was a certain, there's many peak moments, but that one really stands out. I love it. I love it. And then after the show, you drank way too much too quickly and had to go to the hotel. <laughs> um, all right, and then I would, this is about production. What record have you produced that you are most proud of? Oh, that's that's almost impossible to uh, to, an to, an to answer. I mean, you know, throwing copper definitely sticks out. It yes. it certainly sold the most, and it sort of defined a you know, people, a lot of other producers have come up to me and people have said that that record really influenced the sound of records going forward. And that was, uh, we recorded up at Pachyderm up in uh, Minnesota, uh, in Minnesota, where uh, um, Nirvana, Nirvana had just been in, made in utero there. Mm -hmm. And we were looking at studios and I basically said to the guys at live, we're only going to work at a studio that everybody can drive to. Cause I don't want some motherfucker going off and, and there's only, and someone took the car and they're miserable. If they want to get in their car and go take a break, they got to be able to have their own car if they want it there. 
So we did the rehearsals in Milwaukee and then we went up to Minnesota. And then when you know, Tom Lord Algie, I brought him to mix that. And, you know, it's a funny thing because you, when, when you're working on records, you a lot of them you think you fall in love with every one of them and you think they have the potential to be really great or like or an awful lot of them, not every single one. But that one... Over time, you just go, boy, there is not a bad song on this record. Yeah. In fact, we in fact, we did not like the song called Turn My Head and another couple of other songs that were hit songs that could have been on that record. That that record really has stood the test of time and is it, it just is 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 just great. And I loved working with and you know, I did um I've done you know, I did a bunch of records with them, but they were wonderful guys. Did you argue with Ed over including the word placenta on that record. That's the only hit song where the word yeah. placenta, yeah. I sing that song. I do a show called the yeah. goddamn comedy jam where comedians and I'm talking like Bill Burr and Chappelle's mm-hmm. done it. Everybody's done it where they do stand up. Then they tell a story about why they chose the song they're going to sing. And then they sing the cover song with my band. And yeah. it's, we do it at festivals. We've done it at like Bonnaroo, but we do all these comedy festivals. And the best reaction is me opening the show. Like I build it up like I'm about to, are you guys ready to rock? All yeah. right, here we go. Two, three, four. Yeah. <laughs> and, and everybody knows every word. And then I riff in the middle of the song on the placenta line. I thought I thought that it was a little risky, but I was fine with it. And I didn't argue with it. Um, I had, you know, on the distance to here, I think that I, uh, I think it's called, what is it called? The children's song or something. Um, that song didn't have lyrics and I got Ed to write lyrics and I was, and he wanted it to be the pilgrim, the pilgrim song. And I said, no, sounds like children. Don't say, you can use pilgrim song once, but I was, uh, fighting him a little bit on overly religious imagery. I felt that it was just a little, uh, I don't know, presumptuous or pushing it down the throats of his, uh, you know, I liked it when there was some ambiguity. Was it your girl? Was it, you know, was it about some devotion to a religion that you felt or was it about a girl I thought was better? Yeah. All right, final question. I could talk about that record. I gotta, we're, you know what? I'm going to bring you back. We're going to do a whole episode on yeah. that record. Um, and then I ask this to every guest, but in, and it's weird having somebody that worked on the record on this, but does this record deserve to be on the 500 greatest albums list? And you have three more albums. Well, actually, you have four, um, probably more than that if I really research it, but three more Talking Heads records are all coming up on this list. I, I think so. You know, I you know I had one time. There was a time I, Chris and Tina and I were playing a show that was other artists doing Roy Orbison songs that his wife had organized as a benefit. So it was like Katie Lang doing uh, "Crying," which was extraordinary. And we were out in L.A. and my and my wife and I we pulled up to the where we were staying, and. The first, you know, I think Thank You for Sending an Angel Angel came on and they played the entire record and we just sat in the car and listened to the entire record. And I hadn't listened to the whole record in a really long time at this point. point, You know, this is basically the band had already disbanded, really. So, you know, this is 
possibly 10 years later, you know, and it was like, wow, is this song great? And is this, you know, and it just the way it moves from song to song. So yeah, I think it deserves to be up there. I mean, when Rolling Stone did the first hundred best albums, yeah, it's a chart that's very hard to find. I had four records in the top 100. I had the Modern Lovers and three Talking Heads albums. And the Modern Lovers was above all of the Talking Heads records. I, it's crazy because I had no idea how important that record is, but people are saying that originated punk. But so I had as many records as the Beatles on that chart. That's fucking nuts, dude. Yeah, so that I, I tried to track down that chart and someone actually from the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame helped me track it down because it was sort of like, that's the chart I want on my wall. <laughs> you know where they do in studios where they highlight with yellow? Oh, yeah. The ones, yeah, you know, so. <laughs> I, I love that. And what a perfect way to end the episode because um, it's such a, I've, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. I was extremely nervous about making sure I didn't fuck this up. Uh, we've only had a couple of like the people that worked on the album uh, on the podcast. I, we had Billy Gibbons for ZZ Top. We had uh, James, the accordion player from the Pogues. But, you know, I had so much more time with those records and I and I really we did the last record and then we did this one. So back to back, I, I didn't have the full amount of time to absorb it. But but I'm telling you, I had so much fun talking to you. You have this record and speaking with you has made me. a Oh, I got one more question. Have you been to Talking Heads, the club in Baltimore? Because I used to no. party there so no. much. I didn't even know it existed. So. It's a shithole. Okay. It's a shithole in and but it used to have the best party called Tax Low, which was like all the hipsters and the dumpster divers would dance to like at the time it was like Franz Ferdinand and Joy Division and it was you know like a like a like a pre-punk kind of like post-punk dance party and right. um damn well be glad you didn't go but if you okay. ever want to go when this is all done okay please be my guest uh, I can't thank you enough buddy do you have anything you want to promote well first of all are you aware of the one of the last records I made was the Butcherettes, Les Butcherettes. Yeah, I, I saw and them I, live opening for uh, for uh, at the drive-in. The audience that maybe is would let's tune in for Talking Heads. Check out check out this album I did with them. It, I'm really proud of that record, and it's uh, uh, and go see the and go and listen to the record and see the the film Take Me to the River. One thing about the record is. I think Eric Thorngren and I, who mixed it, and Eric is such a genius, is that it has the feel of a record made in the 60s. It has that warmth and that sound that we all grew up with that I think that most records made now, they don't feel like that at all. They don't make you feel happy in the way that those old records do. And we we were able to do it with modern equipment, with new, you know, it's not like we never used Pro Tools to do anything. We did it all, but we, but we just have enough experience to be judicious enough to not ruin the spirit of the of the flaws and the spontaneity and stuff like that. So, really check out the movie Take Me to the River, and and actually just listen to the record. The record, oh, well, the C- CD is unbelievable. I went to go, like I said, I went to go see at the drive-in when they did the reunion tour a few yeah. years ago and uh, they opened for, cause I think she was yeah. dating Omar. Yeah, right? she, she's married to Omar. Yeah. She's married to Omar. And I mean, just, and by the way, I was with my friend, you probably know him, Dean Del Rey. Do you know Dean Del Rey? He's a, he's a comic now, but he was a musician. He knows everybody. Okay. Yeah. You're the first person that doesn't know this guy. 
Uh, but uh, he took me. We were side stage, and I watched the whole show. And the Butcherettes, I mean, just incredible. So I'll definitely check the record out. Okay. Uh, and I'll definitely watch the movie. All right. I can't thank you enough, brother. Thank yeah, you so it's much. Called, it's, it's called Bi Mental. And nice, nice to meet you both. Okay. Thank you. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only Jerry Harrison Fleece Army. Once again, you can find Jerry on all social media at Jerry Harrison Official. Get his records. Listen to the live record. Trust me, what he said about it is so spot on. Couldn't be happier. Wow, God, I'm so, I can't believe I talked to the guy that produced Throwing Copper. That's the shit. Our new music pick this week. Because we just listened to Talking Heads from 78. You are listening to Lay Butcherettes, the band Jerry mentioned, with their new song, Don't Bleed, You're in the Middle of the Forest, off their latest Don't Bleed EP. Lay Butcherettes are a Mexican garage punk band formed in 2007 in Guadalajara by Terry Genderbender. They won Best New Artist and Best Punk Record in the Indie O Awards in 2009 and have performed with Mars Volta, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Queens of the Stone Age, and at the drive-in, which I saw them. And you can find their links on the website, the500podcast.com. And if you want your music featured on the 500 because you were influenced by one of these albums or artists, send us your song to 500podcast at gmail.com. Put the album and the artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week, it's Modern Lovers Week. We're going deep into their 76 self-titled debut record, man. Some say it's the birth of punk. Well, we'll have to find out next week. Listen to the record. You got homework to do. Doogle doogle. Stay fleecy.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little... A little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics... Um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot. And listen to Axe Grind Podcast. Next chapter podcasts.